Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time. So today we are in lesson 14. We're going to continue on in our survey of the Old Testament. And we're up to 2 Kings. And we're going to focus on 2 Kings chapters 3 and 4. And we're going to entitle this Jehoram and Elisha. Jehoram is the uh, king of Israel who followed Hazziah. And we're going to talk about him today, as well as we're going to talk about the ministry of Elisha. And so this is the first part, because next week we'll continue on in our discussion of these two men, specifically in, with regards to the ministry of Elisha. So what I want you to do is uh, I want you to have your Bibles open as we go through this together. You can look and see the text yourself and see what we're going to be talking about. So let's go ahead and begin in chapter 3 and look and see what's happening first. So we're going to talk about in chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, the writer he does, has done this for other uh, kings as well. He begins with an opening statement concerning the nature of their reign. And so we could entitle this the wickedness of Jehoram. So the first thing I want you to notice is this. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's reign as king of Judah, Jehoram became king over Israel. So I want you to remember something. When we talked about Hazziah, remember he became king in the 17th year. So that must have been in the beginning part of Jehoshaphat's reign. And it said he only reigned two years until uh, the reign of uh, Jehoram, which is the king of Judah at that time. So we've got two kings with the same name. Now you're saying, how's that possible? Because it says that Jehoram here is king over Israel when Jehoshaphat is still king. Well, what I forgot to mention to you was, is that sometimes there is a co-regency that happens. Now what I mean by co-regency, that means that sometimes the king also rules with his son, also rules with his son. And so we see that here is that Jehoshaphat towards the end of his reign, allowed his son to assume authority on the throne as well as being co-regent. And so when, when first, Second Kings chapter 1 talks about Isaiah's reign being until the second year of Jehoram, that's talking about how long Jehoram had already been ruling as co-regent. But here with this Jehoram, the king of Israel, he begins his reign in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's reign. Here's the next thing I want you to notice. He ruled as king over Israel for 12 years. 12 years. Now remember, Isaiah, he only ruled for two years. Part of the reason why that happened is because he fell through the lattice, injured himself, and died. And he didn't have any heir, so his brother Jehoram took over. Now we come to the point of the passage now where it describes the nature of his reign. And so if you remember, if they were a good king, they would say, and he walked in the foot, you know, he walked in the ways of David. Or if he was evil, they said he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to whichever uh, king they want to refer him to. So let's take a look at what they say about Jehoram. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not according to the ways of his father and mother. All right, so what we see here is Jehoram, unlike his brother, Hazziah, and unlike his father, Ahab, 
was evil and did wrong, but he didn't do wrong to the level of their wickedness. So it's interesting, isn't it? He's still wrong. He's still doing evil, still provoking the Lord, but he didn't do it to the level of his brother or especially to the level of his father and mother. And remember, his mother is Jezebel. And, and they go on and point out that Jehoram put away the sacred pillar of Baal that Ahab, his father, had made. So this sacred pillar or this sacred idol, this sta sacred statue that Ahab had made to Baal, Jehoram removed that. So he's moving the country away. He's moving the northern kingdom away from the worship of Baal, which his mother had stirred Ahab to do. But Jehoram is not doing that. So it sounds like he's doing good here. Well, not completely. Because the text then goes on and tells you, however, he did continue to walk according to the sins of Jeroboam. Okay, remember Jeroboam? Jeroboam was the guy who rebelled against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He took ten tribes with him, and when they separated into their own kingdom, rather than continuing to follow the Lord, because he was worried about it, the northern tribes going back to the southern kingdom, he established his own, well, religion. And he referred to two golden calves that he set up in two places, one in Dan, the other in Bethel, as being the gods that brought you out of Egypt. So he's referring back to the original sin all the way back in the wilderness where they built this golden calf representation of God. So in a way, Jehoram is continuing in that sin, which is leading the northern kingdom astray, but he's not allowing them to follow after Baal anymore. And you know, you can see where he maybe is justifying that. He could say, well, you know, we're still following Yahweh, except it's this golden calf. We're not following after the pagan gods here. And see, what happens is, is that, and this can even happen in our culture, is that we can assume something of God as long as the God we have assumed or created in our mind allows us to do whatever the culture that we live in allows us to do. And that's what's happening here. They've created a God in their own mind who is not the God of Israel, whom God hated. In fact, the next statement tells you everything here that basically he provoked the Lord with this. He provoked the Lord with this. Now, we come then to chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 4 to 27, and we're going to see the rebellion of Moab. We've already had this mentioned before in an earlier text as far as setting the time period. Now they're going to discuss the whole issue of the rebellion of Moab. So the king of Moab was a sheep breeder and regularly paid a tribute to Israel. So obviously Moab in an earlier time had been defeated by Israel, probably by Ahab, and then became what is known as a vassal state. And because they were a vassal state, the king would have to pay a tribute to the conquering kingdom to remain, quote, at peace. And so here's what's going on. Moab becomes a vassal state to Israel, 
and they have to pay a tribute. And what kind of tribute did they have to pay? Well, again, remember, it mentions that he's a sheep breeder, so they're obviously an agricultural nation where sheep is a major part of their, of their uh, economy. The tribute included 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That was their yearly tribute. That's a lot of animals, folks. A lot of young animals that are being born that have to be given over, as well as the wool of a 100,000 rams. Okay? Now, when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against Israel. And this is what always happens. When there is a change of leadership within a structure of government, that's even true even in our world today, those who have been quote, vassals or those who have been oppressed or even defeated will try to rebel against the major entity because there's a shakeup in the leadership. So when Ahab dies, Moab then, the king of Moab, decides, okay, this is our chance. We're going to rebel against Israel. Enough of giving him our, our lambs, enough of giving him our wool. That's all a major economic blow to us. We're going to do our own thing. We're not going to worry about it. Well, Jehoram gathered all Israel and sent word to Jehoshaphat seeking his help. So when it says he gathered all Israel, it's not that he gathered all of the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. He gathered all of the mighty men, all of the warriors, all the men who could wield a sword to come to him. So he's gathering an army and he sends word to the south to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, hey, I'm going to need your help. Now, Jehoshaphat agreed to help, and it was decided to attack Moab from the south through Edom. Okay, so I want you to think about it this way. All right, let's say, I'm going to hold up my Bible here. Let's say this is Israel right here, okay? So over on this end is the Mediterranean Sea. So when you're looking at Israel here, Moab is right here in the middle along this spine. Here's the Jordan, and here is Moab. Ammon is up here, Moab, and then Edom is to the south. So what they're deciding to do is, is that they're making an alliance with Jehoshaphat, saying, okay, this is what Jehoram's suggestion was. Let's attack him from the south. He's not going to expect an attack from the south. So we will go through Edom up into Moab and attack him that way. And so that's what we see happening here. And that is the plan. Now, let me remind you, at this point, while Moab was a vassal state up until the rebellion of Israel, Edom is a vassal state or under the subjection of Judah. So that's why they're taking part. So there's three kings now. We've got the king of Israel, we've got the king of Judah, which is Jehoshaphat, and we've got the king of Edom. So the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom marched their armies north for seven days. So they're attempting to attack from the south. So what they have to do is they're marching their armies north. Now, here's the problem. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan. So as they are marching up, 
Folks, that is further away from the climate of the Mediterranean. And it's also in an area that is, well, let's call it dry. Because you've got further east, the Great Desert. So they're marching for seven days. Now, they had no water for their army. And Jehoram despaired at their plight. So here they are, they're marching for seven days. They have no way to water the armies that are going up. So you're talking about hundreds of thousands of men. And their animals. What kind of animals? Well, you would obviously have horses that the, that, the, that the cavalry would ride on, but you also have pack animals. When you're talking about moving that many men, you've got equipment to move, you've got food to move, and the problem is, is there's no water. So Jehoram begins to get, well, frantic. He begins to despair. He begins to, well, overreact. So he claimed that the Lord had delivered the three kings into the hand of Moab. So the first thing he does is he wants to blame God. God, you've done this to us. You've given us over to the king of Moab to kill us. And we could be rather harsh with him, but the reality, isn't that what we do sometimes? God, why are you doing this to me? What did I do? Are you getting back at me? That's what Jehoram is doing here. Now, Jehoshaphat, remember, he's a godly king, a man who walks in the footsteps of his father, David. Jehoshaphat asked if there was no prophet to inquire of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat says, is there not a prophet of the Lord here for us to ask the Lord what's going on, what we need to do? Okay, because that's what Judah would do. Under the rulership of Jehoshaphat, they would inquire of the Lord. Well, one of Jehoram's servants said that Elisha, Elijah's servant, was here and they went to him. All right, now the text tells you he describes Elisha as the one who watered Elisha's hands. That's a fact of service. He did service, meaning Basically, this was Elijah's servant and probably heir. That's what he's talking about here. But they're saying he's here, he's nearby, and so the three kings go to meet Elisha. Now, what we see happening here is very interesting. Elisha asked Jehoram, what did he have to do with him and he should go to his prophets? So he's saying, look, what do I got to do with you? You go to your father's prophets. Why are you coming to me? I have nothing to do with you. Jehoram protested, saying that the Lord had brought these three kings to go up against Moab. So Jehoram's like, well, wait a minute, now God has brought us together to go up against Moab. But that's not going to ease things with Elisha. Elisha stated that were it not that if were it not for the presence of Jehoshaphat, he would not help Jehoram. So notice something here. Elisha is saying, look, I would not even help you were it not for King Jehoshaphat who stands here. So he's helping because Je King Jehoshaphat is involved with this. So 
what happens next is interesting because we've not seen this before, and so that just goes to tell you that God doesn't choose the same method every time to do what he wants to do. What do you mean, George? Well, I want you to look. Elisha called for a musician, and the hand of the Lord came upon him when the music played. So it's very interesting. Elisha says, all right, I need a musician. And so they bring a musician, and as soon as the musician started playing, whatever he was playing, the Spirit of God came upon Elisha to prophesy, to share what God had said, to share God's truth. So here's what Elisha does. The Lord told them to fill the valley with trenches because he will fill the valley with water. So he's telling them, all right, you guys get ready. I'm going to bring water. And when I bring water, I'm bringing lots of it. It's going to be able to take care of the problem. So you fill the valley where you're at with water, with the trenches. Why? Well, to gather the water. Trenches, another word for it, would be ditches. He will do this so they can drink and he will deliver the Moabites into their hands. So he's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring all this water. I'm going to flood this valley. And that's so you can drink, your animals can drink, but I'm also going to give you the Moabites because of this into your hand, meaning you're going to have victory over them. But that's not the end of the prophecy. The Lord told him to take every fortified city in Moab and destroy the land of the Moabites, basically to wreak havoc, destroy the land. Why? Keep them in subjection. Take the cities where they're fortified and then destroy all of the crops and the orchards and so forth. You're going to cripple this nation. Now, in the morning, when the grain offering was offered, all right, so you remember there were certain offerings that had to be offered uh, to the Lord, and in the morning when the grain offering was offered, the land was filled with water. Now, the text doesn't tell you how that happens. Maybe it was a rainstorm. Maybe it was some underground water source. It doesn't tell you. All it says is, is God provided water and the land was flooded with water. Moab had gathered all their men and made a stand at their border. So again, so the army of these three kings is coming up from the south. So you've got Judah, you've got Israel, and you've got Edom. They're coming up from the south through Edom to the north where Moab is. So Moab gathers everybody who can wield a sword, and they put them at the southern border to make a stand. Okay? To make a stand. Now, in the morning, the Moabites saw the water and thought it was blood because of the sun. So they're at the north of this valley where it's all flooded, and they're looking down and they see this water, but they don't know it's water. What they see is, is the reflection of the sun, which is probably red in the morning, basically reflecting off of the water, and it looks like the valley is flooded with blood. The, the valley is flooded with blood. So here's what happened. The Moabites, they thought the three kings had killed each other 
and the spoil was there for the taking. So they, the Moabites thought, well, you know, all this blood is because they killed each other. The area is just flooded with blood from all these armies that have destroyed each other. And all the stuff they brought with them, all the spoil is just waiting there for the taking. Now you say, George, is that possible that they would think that way? Yes, we've already seen that this has happened before. We've already seen several times through our survey of the Old Testament, when we've looked at these narratives, that there are times when there is these armies coming against Israel, God moves in the midst of them in some way, and they end up attacking and killing each other, only then for Israel to come in and take the spoil. Well, the Moabites are thinking this is what's happening, and they're the ones who are going to swoop down and take the spoil. Well, here's what happens. They came to the camp of Israel and were attacked. So here they are. They're probably just, oh, let's go take the stuff. They're not probably cautious or whatever because they think everyone's dead. So they come to the camp of Israel, only they're not dead. They're alive. And so the Moabites go to take the spoil but end up being now attacked by Israel and being attacked by the other armies as well. Israel and her allies then defeated Moab and destroyed the land. So they defeated the Moabites, and then they destroyed the land. So they took the fortified cities, and they destroyed the land. They're doing all that God told them to do. Now here comes the situation that is a problem. Surrounded, the king of Moab offered his own son, as a sacrifice. Now the God of the Moabites was Chemosh. And it was not uncommon to sacrifice your firstborn or your child to the God Chemosh. And so this is what's happening. So obviously he's surrounded. He's obviously in a fortified city. And so the account is, is that he offered his son on the wall of the city. So there on the wall of the city with all these armies surrounding ready to come take it, he sacrifices his own son to the god Chemosh. Well, the way the text reads is it's very interesting. So when you come to this portion, it, it's actually quite amazing. And so when you look at what's happening here, you kind of wonder who is it talking about. So let me just read it to you, okay? It says this, verse 26 of chapter 3. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king, break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. So he's trying to break through to the king of Edom. Why? Because maybe thinks his chances will be better with Edom rather than with Israel. He, then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. Now, what, what does that mean, great indignation? Well, they were greatly appalled that they had gotten to the point where they sacrificed the heir to the king. And some would say that maybe there was even the armies who were watching this on the outside 
were appalled. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. So here's the point I'm going to make to you. The act was repugnant to the three kings, and they returned home. That was the end of it. I mean, they'd already, I mean, they defeated him, and it was basically, they should have stopped, but they got to the point where they had a man so desperate that he sacrifices his own son, and that was it. It was repugnant to them, and they left. Now, that brings us then to 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 44, and we're going to see the ministry of Elisha. And so what's included next is four stories that really show the ministry of Elisha and what God did through him. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in our Sunday school time today. So we're going to start, first of all, with the widow of one of the sons of the prophets. It's found in verses 1 to 7. So chapter 4 begins with this. The widow of one of the sons, one from the sons of the prophets, cried out to Elisha for help. Now remember who the sons of the prophets were. This is some sort of guild of prophets or some sort of school of prophets that followed the Lord. They tried to teach Israel concerning the law. And so one of them died and he had a widow. And she's crying out to Elisha for help. She told the prophet that the creditor was coming to take her sons as slaves. Now this is different for you and I in our culture today. If you default on your debts here, there are ways legally to be able to handle that. You might lose everything, but one thing that doesn't happen is you don't get thrown into debtor's prison, so to speak. You don't have your children taken from you as slaves, or you don't become a slave. That's what happens in this culture. Now, it's interesting, we had something like that even in the beginning of our nation, because when the colonies that came over, it was not uncommon in the earlier time before our nation was formed in the colonies to have what was known as indentured servants. What is that? That's somebody who owed somebody back in England lots of money, and so they were then sent to the new world to, quote, work off their debt. They became an indentured servant. They basically were a slave because of a debt they had. Well, this woman has the same kind of situation. She's telling Elisha, we have lots of debts, and the creditor, the person they owe the money to, is coming to take her two sons as slaves. So here's what Elisha does. Elisha asked her what she had in the house, to which she replied she only had a jar of oil. So he basically says, what, what you got at home? What, what, what do you have? All I've got is one jar of oil. Well, he told her to close the door behind her and pour the oil into vessels until they're full. Basically, go home, shut the door behind you, don't let anybody know what's going on, then I want you to pour this jar of oil in any vessel that you have in your house until they're full. Until they're full. So that's what she does. The oil flowed 
filling the vessels until there were no more vessels to fill and the oil stopped. So the text tells you that there she is, she's pouring the oil from this one jar and it's continually filling all of the vessels in her house. She gets to the point where she asks her son for another vessel and he says there are no more. And when that happens, the oil stopped. The miracle ends. So here's what happens. She then went to Elisha, who told her to sell the oil in order to pay her debts and live on the rest. So he says, look, okay, now take the oil and sell it, which they probably would have done. They would have sold whatever they had. With that money, pay off the debts that you owe so your sons won't have to become slaves. And then with the money that's left over, you live on the rest. That's quite a miracle, isn't it? That's quite a miracle. Well, that brings us now to verse 8, and we're going to look from verses 8 to 37. It's a big story about a Shunammite woman. Shunammite was, Shunammah is, was a place in Israel at that time. It's in the northern kingdom, and there's this notable woman. So a notable Shunammite woman fed Elisha whenever he would pass by. Now, when it's telling you notable, that means this was a woman of note in the community. Probably her family, her husband, had some sort of wealth in their agrarian culture. And probably they had servants or probably they had workers under them. But they had means, they had money, they had the ability to take care of somebody. So when the prophet would travel through the area, when Elisha would travel through the area, she would be sure to invite him to feed him, to take care of his needs whenever he passed by. Now the text tells you that she had her husband make a small upper room for the prophet when he passed by. Now their homes are different than our homes. Their homes are flat. So what she does is she tells her husband, I want you to build a small upper room. So build another room on top of our house for the prophet, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to put a table in there and all these things for him. So when he passes by, he has a place to stay. So, of course, she does this, and Elisha is very appreciative. So Elisha asked the woman what he could do for her. What could he do for her? But she declined. She basically says, I have my family. Basically, I have everything I need. Everything I need. Now, Elisha's servant pointed out that she did not have a son, so Elisha had her called. Now, Elisha has a servant here by the name of Gehazi. We're going to see him several times in this passage. Particularly, we're going to see him mentioned in the next chapter with an event that he is involved in that doesn't go well for him, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next week. But he points out to Elisha, you know what? She's childless. Now, okay, that would have been a major stigma for her with the people of Israel. Remember, it was a desire of every woman to have a son. Why? You would carry on the family name. You would carry on the inheritance. 
And there was also the hope that maybe you would be the one to bear the Messiah. Well, she is barren. She doesn't have a son. So this is a major, major thing against her in that community, in that culture. So Elisha has her called. He told her that about this time next year, she would embrace a son. So he says to her, next time this year, you're going to be holding a boy. Now her reaction is, is interesting if you read it because she's like, don't lie to me. I didn't ask for this. What is she doing when she does that? Well, she doesn't want the disappointment. Probably she's had disappointment before with regards to this whole issue. And she doesn't want to be hurt again. But the prophet is telling her, no, you're going to have a child by this time next year. So the text tells you that she conceived and bore a son as Elisha had said she would. So she conceived, bore a child, he was a boy, everything was in fulfillment according to what the prophet had said. Well, you say, wow, George, that's a great story. Wow, what a ministry here from Elisha. Well, the story doesn't end there, folks. It actually takes a tragic turn. When the child grew, he went to his father in the field with the reapers. So he's obviously, this is a few years later, because at this point he's able to go out to the field on his own, he's still a youth, with his father and the reapers. The text goes on and tells you that the boy cried out about his head. My head, my head. So he must have been having some sort of pain. And the father sent the boy to his mother. So basically the father, of course they're working, go see your mom. Typical thing that we would do even in our culture. It says that when she held her son for a period of time, she held her, held her on, his, on, his, on her knees, he died. The boy dies. Now what follows in the next few verses after this is very interesting in what she does. She placed the boy's body in the upper room and went to find Elisha. So what does she do? She goes and takes the boy's body and takes it to the room where the prophet stays. Lays it on the bed there. Then she goes to her husband and says, let me go with a servant and find the prophet. And she goes with him and she searches where the prophet is. And it's just a, a distance away, so she would go to find him. Now when she found Elisha, she cried out in anguish that she had not asked for a son. That sounds very typical, doesn't it? She finds the prophet, she, she's expressing her anguish and saying to him, look, I didn't ask for a child. I didn't ask for a son. Why would you give me a son only to have this happen? Why would you bring anguish in my life? We understand how she's responding, don't we? Now, Elijah told his servants, his servant Gehazi, to run ahead with his staff and lay it on the child's face. So he tells Gehazi, I want you to run ahead of me, go to the upper room, take my staff, lay it on his face. 
So when Gehazi did this, he returned to tell the prophet that the boy was not awakened. So Gehazi does that. He runs ahead, gets there, gets to the upper room, lays the staff on the boy's head, face. Nothing happens. He then turns around, runs back to where the prophet is and tells him nothing's happened. So Elisha went to the boy. Elisha went to the boy where he prayed and laid on the boy seven times. It's very vivid in the description of what's happening here where the prophet lays mouth to mouth, hand to hand, body part to body part on top of the boy, lays on him seven different times while he's praying for God to heal this boy. After the seventh time, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now again, you're not going to see this anywhere else in the scripture. No other kind of story like this. Even Elijah, when he raised the widow's son from Zidon, it's not the same. He went up to the upper room and prayed, but it's not the same. The boy, seven times, the boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. Elisha then called the woman to take her son, which she did after honoring him. What do you mean honoring him, George? Well, the text says she bowed down to the prophet and honored him because she had her boy back. And that's the end of that story. Now, there's two more stories that we're going to see here with regards to the ministry of Elisha. And they start off with, in verse 38, with the poison stew, and then move to the second story with the feeding of a hundred. All right, so let's take a look here. Elisha returned to Gilgal, where there was famine in the land. So Elisha goes from there, and he returns to Gilgal. Remember, the prophets remove on a circuit. So this prophet is moving on a circuit. He goes to Gilgal, and the area of Gilgal is in the midst of a famine. So they're having a food problem. Elisha was sitting with the sons of the prophets, and he called his servant to make a stew. So he's there with the sons of the prophet, and he tells Gehazi, Gehazi, I want you to make a stew. What do you make a stew from? Well, folks, we would say, okay, well, you've got to have some beef. Or you're going to use some venison or something. No, no, remember, this is, this is not our culture. They would make it from whatever they could find, greens and herbs of something. In fact, the text tells us that. They went into a field to gather herbs and also gathered some unknown wild gourds. You know what a gourd is, right? We know what a gourd is. We know what the big orange one is in October because you carve it up. That would be a pumpkin or a butternut, butternut squash of some type. Those are all gourds. Well, they found some unknown wild gourds in the field, and they got them, and they cut them up and put them in this stew. Now, when the men ate the stew, they cried out to Elisha that there was death in the stew, meaning the stew was poisonous. There was something about the stew that was making them sick, and they cried out. Now, here's what the prophet does. Elisha called for flour to be put in the stew, and it was then fit to eat. You say, how's that possible? I'm not sure. All we have is what the narrative is telling us here, is that 
they just had to put flour in the stew and it would have taken care of whatever it was that was poisonous in that stew and it was now fit to eat. Very similar thing we saw last week when we saw Elisha and the poisoned well when he put salt in the well and then that made this well okay. Same thing here except it's flour. Now, the next story is the feeding of a hundred. And I think this is very significant because what we're seeing here is an Old Testament foreshadowing of what Jesus would do later on. So a man came to Elisha with the first fruits, 20 barley loaves and some ripened grain. Now, if you remember, according to the law, that if you had a crop, especially if you had a crop of grain or a crop, uh, or if you had the offspring of your herds or whatever, the first fruits belong to the Lord. So this man came to the prophet with his first fruits of his grain. So with the grain, the barley, he made 20 loaves of bread, and he also had some ripened grain that was ready for consumption. Elisha told the man to give it to the people so that they can eat. So Elisha says, okay, I want you to give what you have to the folks so they can eat. Now, the problem is there's a hundred of them. And when we talk about a barley loaf, folks, we're not talking about 20 loaves of bread like you would buy at the local supermarket. We're talking about small loaves from barley. So the man protested about setting this amount before a hundred men. There's no way we can do that. Kind of sounds like the disciples, remember? There's no way, Jesus, we can feed that many with two loaves and three fishes. Elisha told him to give it to the people to eat because the Lord called for this. Okay, so this is not just Elisha telling them. The Lord is leading them to do this. So the Lord also stated that there would be some left over. So the Lord's saying, I want you to do this. I want you to put this food before them. They're going to eat, and then there will be stuff left over. Now remember, there's only 20 loaves of barley, barley loaves, and some roasted grain. And that's going to feed 100 people. So the man set the food before them to eat, and there was some left over, as the Lord has said. So it happens. Here's another miracle. This is the feeding of the hundred. Now later, in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, we see the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus does the exact same thing, except on a grander scale, which showed who he was as the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 4. Next week, we're going to get into chapter 5. And again, we're going to look at the ministry of Elisha with regards to the leper, the man who was a leper, as well as we're also going to see his ministry in other areas as well.